Welcome to Catholics Across the Isle, the podcast of the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops, offering commentary on public policy and civic life. This is Michael Sheedy, Executive Director of the Conference. I'm Michael Sheedy. I'm the Executive Director at the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops. I'm pleased to be joined uh, for this podcast by Archbishop Thomas G. Wenske. He is the Archbishop of Miami, the President of our conference here in Florida, and also the Chairman of the USCCB's Committee for Religious Liberty. Archbishop, it's great to have you for a conversation on religious liberty these days. It's good to be back with you again, Michael. Archbishop, I know that we just celebrated uh, a week for religious liberty and religious freedom. Uh, it's something that's been a priority of the Bishops Conference uh, in Washington and across the country for many years. I guess you know recent memory. It starts always with the, the feast of Saints John Fisher and Thomas More. St. Thomas More, and also it ends with the Feast of the Roman Martyrs, the first Roman Martyrs, and, and also the Feast of St. Peter and St. Paul, also martyred uh, in Rome during the persecution of Nehru. So these were people that uh, were martyred because of their faith, and, and so therefore underscores the importance of praying for religious liberty and defending religious liberty. Also, during that same week, we celebrated the Nativity of John the Baptist, whose Feast of Martyrdom is celebrated later on. But it is important to underscore the fact that uh, John the Baptist uh, was martyred because of his defense of the truth about marriage. That's what got him uh, beheaded, if you will. That week, the last week of June, is a fortuitous week to remind ourselves that religious liberty is the basic freedom, the basic freedom for all people, and is the guarantor of all other liberties. It's often referred to as our first freedom. It's the First Amendment freedom, um, free exercise of religion. Um, it goes along with freedom of speech, uh, the Establishment Clause. I know that, that we, we feel like, and, and I think St. Augustine said it well, that people are made uh, with a yearning for God, for connection with God, uh, that we can seek and that we can we can reach some connection with God. And so being able to pursue religion freely is is, uh, is something that's naturally important to, to every person. But religious liberty is not just the a subjective feeling or a, a, a private uh, relationship between me and God. And too often we have people telling us that... Uh, religion like other things should be only practiced in the privacy of one's home of one's home and that is not uh, correct because re- religion is not just a subjective experience uh, faith has an objective reality outside of ourselves we we belong to a church and that church has an institutional expression and if there's going to be a religious liberty then uh, the, the institution or institutions that are uh, that are part of the church need the space, if you will, to be able to function in society in order to advance its mission. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that that definitely supports the common good because really, what the church is oriented to, oriented to is helping people to know the truth about God, about life, how to live, how to flourish, right. and once well, like freedom of speech assumes the freedom to have newspapers, to have libraries, uh, to have uh, media in which people can exchange opinions and debate. So to freedom of religion also assumes the, uh, the freedom to uh, 
uh, to worship, but also the freedom to serve, the freedom to educate, the freedom to participate in the public square. And as freedom of speech depends on newspapers and other types of institutions, freedom of religion also depends on the healthy, uh, uh, the healthy growth of religious institutions as well. Yeah. Well, Archbishop, there have been a, a series of recent Supreme Court rulings uh, that relate to religious liberty in the re recent weeks. I know you've three been... Of them, actually, three of them, so it's been very good. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one was Espinosa versus the Montana uh, Department of Revenue, I believe, mm -hmm. and it uh, really address something that has been a, a painful legacy of anti-Catholic anti bigotry in this nation for over a hundred years. And this was the continued existence of blame amendment language in state constitutions. Some 35 or more states have language that was adopted by an amendment proposed by a politician, a senator, one time candidate for the presidency, by the name of Blaine, who wanted basically to outlaw Catholic schools. And his amendment did not become part of the U.S. Constitution, but many states adopted the language into their own state uh, constitutions, which basically uh, barred any type of support uh, from the state for institutions that they defined as sectarian, which for them meant Catholics. At that time, you have to remember that the public school system was basically a Protestant uh, school system, and which was one of the reasons why the bishops were beginning to build Catholic schools at that time, because those Catholic immigrants uh, were gonna become part of America, but the bishops did not want them to be uh, assimilated into a Protestant ethic. They wanted them to keep their their Catholic uh, identity. And today, the public schools are not any longer Protestant in the 19th century understanding of public schools. They have become much more secularized. And for that reason, there's other religious groups that are building uh, their own private schools, their own uh, religious schools, in addition to the Catholics. And all of these uh, uh, efforts are also a, a means in which the parents can express their fundamental right to be the ones that decide uh, about the best way to educate their children. And so they decide to educate their children in, a, uh, in, a, in religious values. And, and when the state refuses to support those parents, uh, the parents basically are punished uh, twice because they contribute to the support of public schools by their taxes, but at the same time, uh, in order to send their kids to a private school or a religious school, they have to uh, pay tuition. So this decision, Espinosa, helped uh, or affirmed the legality of tax credit programs, something like what we have in Florida with STEPA, that allows uh, uh, monies to support parents and their children and their choices for education. Archbishop, maybe I could just say a little bit more about Florida's experience with Blaine before we get too far along. Florida is one of those states that you mentioned, Archbishop, as having uh, a Blaine Amendment in its state constitution. 
And for many years, it really had no effect. There were some cases that, uh, that folks brought, uh, but all the precedent really went to the religious institutions until uh, Florida established the Opportunity Scholarship Program uh, when Jeb Bush was our governor. And the District Court of Appeals found that because some of the, the funding from the state program was benefiting uh, religious schools, that it was violative of uh, the state constitution, and that undid that whole program. Uh, now, the Florida Supreme Court sort of sidestepped questions about the Blaine Amendment, recognizing you know, the possible ramifications if we really were going to preclude any religious organization like a Catholic hospital, Baptist nursing home, uh, Lutheran social services uh, from participating in state programs. So they really kind of avoided it, but nonetheless, uh, they did find against that program. And so that did prompt the establishment of the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program that made sure that people could make donations to a third party, and those funds would not be considered revenue of the state, but they could fund right. these programs. It was a workaround, and it was a happy workaround for us. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, the state of Florida actually did support some uh, parochial schools. In fact, the Sisters of St. Joseph ran schools for poor black children in the St. Augustine area that received funds from the state of Florida. But then that was taken away again because of the Blaine language that basically for over a century barred monies from the state going to families that had opted to uh, direct the education of their children into a, uh, a faith-based school. Well, I think thankfully we're in a new place, uh, not only with the Espinosa decision, but here in Florida, we have begun again to to fund state education scholarship programs with general revenue of the state. Governor DeSantis has established and expanded the Family Empowerment Scholarship. Uh, we have the McKay Scholarship, our especially abled, uniquely abled uh, children. Uh, so we're in a new day, I think, that uh, and no one's challenging those. And it's hard, it's important to remember that this is not government money being given to uh, Catholic parents or other uh, parents of religious faith. It's their money because we're all taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, a, a historic means of bigotry of discrimination has been removed by this uh, Supreme Court decision. And, and, hope, and that gives us a lot of, uh, a lot of hope uh, and, and for the coming years. And of course, the, uh, the other decision was the decision uh, concerning the Little Sisters of the Poor, the contraceptive mandate that uh, came into effect during Obamacare. And this decision was very narrowly de de uh, uh, decided. Basically, uh, the decision said that uh, the Trump administration was not an error when it decided to grant the sisters an exemption from the, uh, the Affordable Care Act's uh, uh, provision for contraceptive coverage. So this is a kind of a a temporary victory because a different administration in the future could reverse it. And so uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, gave the Little Sisters of the Poor some relief, and we're all grateful for that, but it's uh, it might have a short expiration date on it, but we shall see. The sisters could be back in the courts at a future date, in a future administration perhaps. 
then, of course, the last uh, decision was the Guadalupe uh, decision in which, uh, again, the courts uh, decided that the state could not interfere in determining the qualifications of teachers that religious institutions hired. In other words, it's what they famously call the ministerial exception that the religious institution, the religious school can determine the qualifications that they want the teachers to have. And so if the teachers uh, do not fulfill those qualifications or uh, in word or in deed, they can be separated from the job if, if that's the case. Or, and they can't, and the, the church or religious based organization is free to hire whom it deems best prepared or best qualified to embody the values of the religious group. So that was a, a very important victory, uh, especially for some of our schools in which uh, uh, we are seeing increasingly, increasingly we're seeing conflict because of, uh, of gender ideology issues, if you will. Yeah, that involved those teachers from the Los Angeles Archdiocese, I know. And uh, I guess, interestingly, as you mentioned, the Hosanna Tabor, a ministerial exception precedent. It's that, much related to this decision. So it's a, it's a continuation of bills on the Hosanna Tabor, which is very important. Well, I guess uh, that's, that's encouraging to just recall that, you know, religious institutions, particularly when they're hiring a minister or someone who teaches religion and worships and leads prayers with kids, uh, is going to be really retained or, or not at the discretion of that religious institution. So that's certainly encouraging. Archbishop, there was also that Bostock case you alluded to, the fact that, you know, we're religious institutions are running into some uh, conflict in the public square over these definitions of sex or understandings of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender ideology. Um, there was that Bostock ruling as well, and which is, you know, which is going to propose, I think will pose some challenges going forward. For- oh, yeah, I think this is going to be, again, uh, very much debated in society for, for years to come. And, and again, the church will face increasing opposition from a variety of, uh, of people because of our of our unique anthropology. Uh, when we were living in a culture that uh, was more Protestant than it is now, we did have a lot of things in common, uh, especially in the uh, in, in our anthropology. As the culture becomes much more secularized, then uh, there's a, a divergence and and anthropologies, if you will. And, you know, if you, if you think about it, today, you know, when the church uh, is criticized or attacked in the media, it's not because, because we say we believe in the Most Holy Trinity or we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist, which we do. And uh, certainly uh, the Trinity is a central mystery of our faith, the Eucharist, is uh, the source of some of our Christian life. But uh, we're not attacked for those beliefs. Uh, We're not attacked because of what we're saying about God. We're attacked for what we're saying about the human person. And so uh, the attacks directed towards the church today are directed towards what we say about human life, what we say about the dignity of marriage, what we say about gender and sex, 
etc. And and this is a and this is something that uh, is perhaps uh, perhaps new. You know, the uh, the first millennia. You know, the church was persecuted or uh, because of what it was saying who God is. You know, and the second millennia uh, and millennium, the the conflict was uh, was more about what the church is. And now in this third millennium, uh, the the real uh, battleground is what is man, what is the human person, and in each of these uh, uh, ages, the church had to uh, again uh, seek the space uh, that it needs in order to fulfill her mission in the world. Archbishop, I think that that sums things up nicely. It brings us back to where we started, uh, to the importance of preserving that space, uh, that religious liberty for the church to continue to act and proclaim. And right, and you know, uh, religion is not private. It's it might be personal, but it's not private. And uh, and therefore, uh, as uh, you know, citizens uh, and uh, members of society, we uh, we we. We participate in the society as religious beings as well, and so we we demand the space we need in order to fulfill our mission as believers, and and also uh, in doing so we seek to promote the dignity of all. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Archbishop. It's been a real real pleasure to speak today. Thank you. Okay. God bless. <laughs>